You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. Initiation of insulin therapy in patients with type 2 diabetes failing oral medications remains a therapeutic challenge. What do we need to know to confront this challenge? Joining us to discuss safe and effective insulin initiation is diabetes specialist and medical advisor to the Charles H. Best Diabetes Center in Toronto, Canada, Dr. Ian Bloomer. Dr. Bloomer, welcome to ReachMD. Oh, Steve, great to talk to you. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. First question, a lot of primary care doctors out there are seeing the bulk of type 2 diabetes in this country. When should they think about initiating insulin therapy? Well, because... You know, the, the mainstay of diabetes care really, as you said, is with family doctors. I think it's great if we can help family doctors become more comfortable with insulin therapy. And I don't think there's ever a bad time to start insulin. If someone has suboptimal glycemic control, then I think, you know, we look at the different options available. I think really we're looking at patients who have been on oral agent therapy, one, two, or possibly even three, but their glucose control just isn't what it should be. I think that's very simply said, and I would agree with you. You know, the way it works in, in, you know, in the clinic that I work at and around the U.S. is we try oral agents first, and if you can't get the A1C down, then you've got to go to the next step. I also agree with you that early initiation of insulin uh, is a very good way to jump on board and get the diabetes under control. Well, we can talk about resistance to insulin therapy for probably two hours. Uh, we know that there's physician resistance to insulin therapy because caregivers aren't that comfortable. But let's talk about patient resistance. I'm sure all of us have our patients say, no, doc, I don't want to do the needle. You got any clues or tips for us to help uh, convince patients that, to go on insulin? Well, well, I'll tell you that, you know, there, there's some bad things about getting older, but I must say, you know, as I get older in terms of my years of experience in practice, it's nice that I've, you know, picked up some tips along the way. And, you know, you're right, because patients so often say to me, you know, I don't want to go on, on insulin, Dr. Bloomer. Aunt Sally went blind when she started insulin. You know, Uncle Joe lost his leg when, the, when he started insulin. So the first thing I try to do, and I bet you do too, is try to dispel, you know, the, the, these notions that people have that insulin was the cause. And, of course, as you know, insulin, you know, wasn't the cause. It was that the patients didn't go on insulin soon enough. The other thing that patients often say is that insulin, you know, oh, doc, this is the end of the road. And I say, hey, no, it's, it's a new beginning. One thing which I only in recent years realized I was failing to say to patients, and I finally, finally clued in, is that I wasn't playing up the benefits enough. I was talking about the obstacles, how I could overcome them, the misunderstandings. But I finally realized I should be playing up with my patients the fact that they've been having poor glycemic control for a time. And I say, hey, when we have you on insulin, you're going to feel better. You'll probably have more energy. If you're having symptoms of hyperglycemia, they'll settle. And insulin is an excellent option, and you're going to feel well on it. One other thing that I started doing, I don't know if you do this, Steve. I started doing this about two years ago, and it's helped me get patients to start insulin more readily than anything I've done in 25 years of practice. I show them the size of the needle, because most patients still have this perception that this needle is this massive hypodermic. Yeah. And then... I inject myself right in front of them. Let's jump into a very important topic. What's your most simplest regimen that you recommend to, when you're starting insulin 
to a patient that's failing oral medications. So most of my patients now with type 2 when I'm starting them on insulin, I'll have them use an insulin pen device and I'll show them how it works, which is dead simple. I'll have them meet with the educator and then I'll have them start it at night. One injection of a long-acting insulin like Lantus or Levomir or NPH insulin and I'll have them started at night, starting with a low dose, like 10 units. And I show them how it's done, and I say, look, this is what you do. Take all the time you need, sit at home, read the instructions, and then check your blood sugar the next morning. And after that, we talk about how to adjust insulin. How do you uh, titrate the dose? Do you let them jump in and help out? So I say, look, start with 10 units. That's like my magic starting number. And I say, go up by one unit every night until your readings first thing in the morning are within target, and I tell them whatever target we've, we've selected. Because I found, you know, some of these algorithms are so complicated, you know, like go up by two units every third night when it's a full moon and a leap year. I mean, it's crazy. So I thought, have them go up by one unit nightly, and I have yet to have a single patient who couldn't remember that. Yes, and I would add on to that, that because the average dose most patients will eventually need, that weigh about 100 kilograms, about 50 units a day. So I like to make uh, frequent contact in the beginning, and if they're not really budging at all, I'll go up in their dose myself. I'll say go up to 20 or 15, and once the blood sugar really starts to come down, then letting them take over is a safe bet. But if you don't have quick or frequent follow-up, their blood sugars may not drop, and then they get discouraged, and they say the insulin doesn't work. Or they get intimidated with the dose. So, in fact, what I did is I made a little handout, a one-paragraph handout, that said to patients, look, you're probably going to require three, four, even five times your initial dose. Keep plugging away. Don't be intimidated. This is normal. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Stephen Edelman, and I'm speaking with Dr. Ian Bloomer. We are discussing insulin initiation in patients with type 2 diabetes. What do you do with the oral agents that they're on during the day? So one of the things I, I do nowadays is I always continue their metformin because I find the combination of daytime oral agent therapy and bedtime insulin, a longer-acting insulin, works great. So the NPH or Lantus or Levermere knocks their blood sugars down overnight. And then I continue their oral agents, almost always, during the day to control things during the day. So in particular, I continue metformin therapy during the day. And if they're on a sulfonylurea like glyburide, then I'll continue that as well, or diamicron. Well, I would say my opinion is fairly close to yours. I continue all orals, including TZDs, um, and including uh, Baeta, uh, if they're on Baeta. And if the patient develops hypo during the day, then I certainly withdraw the sulfonylurea. And of course, since TZD and insulin can lead to a little more weight gain or ankle edema, I'll be looking out for that. But I don't automatically pull things off because I don't want to blunt the fall in hypoglycemia. What happens when you get the morning blood sugars down, but the A1C does not come down to below 7 or your individual goals? What other strategies do you use? So if the long-acting or, or NPH insulin at bedtime in conjunction with daytime oral agents isn't working out sufficiently well, then I look at a couple of choices. You know, what, what I'd love to do in this situation, ideally, is add a rapid-acting insulin with meals like Novolog or Epidra or Humalog. And titrate the doses up in conjunction with ongoing use of the longer acting insulin at bedtime. Well, let me jump in there and say that basal bolus strategy, which is what you're talking about, I find that many occasions 
all I need is to give fast-acting insulin before their main meal, in addition to their daytime orals, in addition to the basal. And a lot of times, that's all you need to get the A1C down. So the other option is using a premixed insulin. Now, I put them on like 70-30 insulin as a start. And for example, I might put them on 10 units twice a day, you know, 10 units before breakfast and 10 units before supper. And then I have them increase the dose both morning and evening by one unit daily until their readings are, are into target. So many of us in the diabetes world spend so much time trying to finesse our schedules to, you know, to the nuances, the subtleties. And sometimes I think, you know, we're, we're just complicating matters because so many of our patients, of course, they're just so insulin resistant. We just need to pull up the dump truck and pour the insulin in. Whether we use this type of insulin or that, I think that's not nearly as important as just realizing so many of these people just need buckets of insulin. Yeah, and I, I would jump in there and say, you know, I do use premix. I think there's a subset of patients that do well on it. They like it. it you want to give them, you know, like you said, just kind of a big bolus before their two main meals. I prefer the analog mixture. I find that it works a little better in terms of improving the postprandial and not hanging around as long. However, I have patients that do come in on, on the old premix with the older regular, and they do well, and I usually don't change what isn't broken. Um, you can also use premix three times a day, and, and patients do like the fact that uh, they don't have to mix. And so I always tell the younger doctors that if that premixed insulin works very well in obese insulin resistant type 2s where you're not going to have to do any dose titration of the fast acting versus the intermediate because when you have thin type 2s as you know they're more insulin sensitive and, and you got to do more adjustments uh, kind of similar to a type 1 diabetic for a family doctor who's looking at a straightforward strategy they can employ in the office and that'll work for the great majority of their patients. If a patient's accepting of twice-daily insulin, start them on 70-30 insulin, 10 units before breakfast, 10 units before supper, and go from there. Yep, and I also say that if you're going to, if you have a patient very well adjusted on basal insulin and you don't want to make the switch to premix, just give five or 10 units of fast-acting before the largest meal of the day, typically dinner. And you can make adjustments by five or 10 at a time and use the subsequent blood sugar, like bedtime blood sugar, or even the blood sugar the next morning to make the adjustment because we know the risk of hypoglycemia isn't uh, the same as it is in type 1 diabetes. Well, talking about type 1 diabetes, do you ever use an insulin pump in type 2s? I have hundreds of people with type 1 on pumps. I've only got a couple with type 2. And again, I, I, I think for, for someone, especially, as you said, a lean type 2 who's not hugely insulin resistant, where it becomes an issue of fine-tuning insulin, not just a matter of dumping in truckloads of insulin. I think when we're looking at people where it's just fine-tuning the insulin, I think then it becomes more like treating someone with type 1, and I think insulin pump therapy is an excellent option there. And in fact, you know, I think that we probably, and you know, I'm probably including myself, I think we probably underutilize it in people with type 2, and I think one of the reasons I'm probably guilty in that way is funding. I can get my patients with type 1 funded for pump therapy quite readily, and my patients with type 2, there's not a chance I can get them funded. So they have to have their own financial resources to do that. Yeah, it, you know, at the VA hospital, we're, we're, they're very flexible with insulin pumps in type 2. So I have a lot of experience. And you're right. We don't use it enough. And what's the criteria? 
you do your best with multiple daily injections or premix, and you can't get the A1C down, or they have a, a profession that uh, you know takes them across different time zone changes, or especially has a job that has different work shifts, you know, the graveyard and the afternoon, and it's really hard for them to control their diabetes. And I can tell you, Ian, and as you probably know and, and would, would guess, that type 2 diabetics do very well on insulin pumps. In general, if people are on multiple daily doses of insulin, they usually love pump therapy. You know, sometimes I have to twist around to consider it, but once they do, they usually come back to the office and say, oh, doctor, I'm so glad you convinced me to do that. It's great. I would like to thank our guest, diabetes specialist and medical advisor to the Charles H. Best Diabetes Center in Toronto, Canada, Dr. Ian Bloomer. Dr. Bloomer, thanks so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. You can find Dr. Bloomer on the web at OurDiabetes.com. Thanks, Ian. Well, thanks so much, Steve. Pleasure chatting. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit NovoMedLink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at ReachMD.com. Daddy, what are you reading? I'm reading about something called GLP-1. Is it a robot? No. (laughs) GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism. Its multiple actions are critical to glucose control. Huh? Uh, Okay. Well, GLP-1 works in a glucose-dependent manner. It stimulates the beta cells in your pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibit the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. It also helps regulate food ingestion by slowing gastric emptying in your stomach here (laughs) and making you feel full. Like at Thanksgiving? Yes. Um, I don't get it. Is it important? Well, GLP-1 is important because it impacts the multiple systems affected by diabetes. It also plays a significant role in protecting beta cells, a key to slowing diabetes progression. Unfortunately, many people with type 2 diabetes have impaired GLP-1 secretion and impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. Like Grandpa? Yes. And like many of my type 2 diabetes patients. That's why I want to make sure I'm looking at the whole picture in diabetes. Sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. It's important to look at weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction. Impaired GLP-1 physiology is also a part of the problem, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. So, the GLP-1 robot will help you see the whole picture. (laughs) Yes, I guess in a way it will. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about GLP-1 and the role it plays in diabetes, please visit novomedlink.com slash DIA.